Welcome to our Cato Out Loud program, providing audio editions of print publications published by the Cato Institute. This program provides the introduction to the Inclusive Economy, a Cato Institute book authored by Michael Tanner. This year, federal, state, and local governments will spend more than $1 trillion to fund more than 100 separate anti-poverty programs. In fact, since President Lyndon Johnson declared war on poverty 52 years ago, anti-poverty programs have cost us more than $23 trillion. That's a huge sum of money by any measure. What has all this money bought us? Although far from conclusive, the evidence suggests that this spending has successfully reduced many of the deprivations of material poverty. This finding shouldn't be a big surprise. As George Mason University economist Tyler Cowen notes, under most classical economic theories, a gift of cash always makes individuals better off. Regardless of how dim a view one takes of governmental competence in general, it would be virtually impossible for the government to spend $23 trillion without benefiting at least some people in poverty. The evidence certainly appears to bear this out. The sort of deep poverty that existed at the start of the war on poverty in the mid-1960s is largely eliminated. By international standards, it could be reasonably claimed that poverty has been all but eliminated in this country. Take hunger, for example. In the 1960s, as much as one-fifth of the U.S. population and more than one-third of poor people had diets that did not meet the recommended dietary allowance, RDA, for key nutrients. Conditions in 266 U.S. counties were so severe that they were officially designated as hunger areas. Today, malnutrition has been significantly reduced. According to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, just 5.6% of U.S. households 7 million households had very low food security in 2013, a category roughly comparable to the 1960s measurements. Even among people below the poverty level, only 18.5% report very low food security. Housing provides another example. As recently as 1975, more than 2.8 million renter households, roughly 11% of renter households and 4% of all households, lived in what was considered severely inadequate housing, defined as units with physical defects or faulty plumbing, electricity, or heating. Today, that number is down to roughly 1.2 million renter households, 1% of all households. In 1970, fully 17.5% of households did not have fully functioning plumbing. Today, just 2% do not. And if you look at material goods, the case is even starker. For instance, in the 1960s, nearly one-third of poor households had no telephone. Today, not only are phones nearly universal, but also roughly half of poor households own a computer. More than 98% have a television and two-thirds have two or more TVs. In 1970, less than half of poor people had a car. Today, two-thirds do. Clearly, the material circumstances of poor families have improved significantly over the past 50 years. Conservative critics of welfare frequently point out that the U.S. Census Bureau poverty measure has remained virtually unchanged over the past 50 years. In fact, the only substantial decline since the mid-1970s occurred in the 1990s, 
a time of state experimentation with tightening welfare eligibility, culminating in the passage of national welfare reform, the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act of 1996. The official poverty measure is misleading because it fails to consider the non-cash benefits that constitute the majority of welfare payments, as well as refundable tax credits such as the Earned Income Tax Credit, EITC. For this reason, it would be better to consider alternative measures that more fully account for these benefits as well. For example, a 2012 paper from the Brookings Institution modified the official poverty rate to account for in-kind transfers, such as food stamps and the tax system, as well as correcting for what they perceive as an upward bias in the inflation adjustment. Using this measure, Bruce Meyer and James Sullivan found that only 8.3% of Americans were living in poverty in 2010, a year in which the official poverty rate was 15.1%. Using their methodology to look back in time, they conclude that the poverty rate actually fell by 23.5 percentage points between 1960 and 2010. A second study by Christopher Wimmer and other researchers at the Columbia Population Research Center using a similar methodology estimates that the actual poverty rate, fully accounting for non-cash welfare benefits, is about 5.5 percentage points lower than the official rate. Studies have also looked at specific programs and their effects on poverty rates. For example, the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities estimated in 2014 that without the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, or food stamps, some 4.7 million more people would be poor. The Census Bureau also suggests that food stamps reduce the number of people in poverty, but by slightly less than half as much, roughly 2.2 million. Similarly, the Census Bureau suggests that Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, TANF, reduces the number of poor Americans by 304,000 and that housing subsidies lift 1.2 million Americans out of poverty. Certainly, the methodology behind these figures can be questioned, but even if the numbers are off substantially, there is no doubt that these programs have a substantial effect on rates of material poverty. The evidence that welfare spending has reduced poverty, or at least the degree to which it has reduced poverty, is not wholly unqualified. Other factors, such as the passage of the Civil Rights Act, the expansion of economic opportunities to African Americans and women, increased private charity, and general economic growth all may have played a role in whatever poverty reduction occurred. Besides, studies suggest that improvements that resulted from spending in the early years after these programs began have plateaued more recently and that we are no longer seeing marginal declines in poverty commensurate with increased spending. We should also at least consider the counterfactual. What actions would the poor have taken in the absence of welfare? We know that incentives matter and there is a vigorous debate about the degree to which the availability of welfare creates incentives toward poverty-inducing behavior by discouraging work and encouraging non-marital births. Some observers, such as Charles Murray, who explored these issues in his groundbreaking book, Losing Ground, see a significant effect, while others, such as Robert Moffat of Johns Hopkins, point to a much smaller impact. The evidence in this area is limited and contradictory. 
Poverty rates declined following Clinton-era welfare reform, and experts attribute part of that decline to the reform. However, studies following Reagan-era benefit cuts found that in most cases, increases in wages did not fully offset benefit reductions. My own research for the Cato Institute suggests that someone leaving welfare for an entry-level job would likely suffer an initial loss of income, although I do not address the likely long-term impact, which could well be more positive. The incentives and other unintended consequences of welfare will be explored in depth later in this book. Still, looking at the totality of available evidence, it is hard to argue that welfare spending has not been a contributing factor to the decline in the material deprivation and hardships of poverty. Surveying the available literature, Rebecca Blank of the University of Wisconsin concludes, transfer programs unambiguously make people less poor. This line of research has led many conservative critics to focus on the systemic failings of welfare and their impacts on the larger economy. For instance, the taxes or debt required to support welfare transfers may slow economic growth or limit innovation. And work disincentives reduce the labor pool, further eroding growth and international competitiveness. These concerns about economic growth are not abstractions. Rather, the evidence is overwhelming that over time, economic growth lifts more people out of poverty than any achievable amount of redistribution. In a world of scarcity, some will always be relatively poor. Good anti-poverty policy, therefore, should seek to encourage growth and reduce scarcity. What we need is inclusive growth, economic growth to which the poor have access, by any measure, the vast majority of the population was poor 100 years ago. In fact, even the richest individuals 100 years ago would be considered poor by many of today's standards. What changed that was the enormous growth and innovation that took place since then. What remains to be done is to remove the obstacles that still remain while preserving the institutions that promote continued economic growth. If our economy grows robustly into the future, we can expect that 100 years from now, all Americans, including the poor, will have far more material abundance than today. Yet, the converse is also true. To the degree that the welfare state undermines or otherwise encumbers the free market that helps drive economic growth, Americans will be poorer in the future than they would otherwise be. To put this in perspective, if U.S. economic growth from 1870 to 1990 had been just one percentage point lower, our country would be no richer than Mexico. Thus, even if current welfare policies benefit individual poor people at a given time, they may well be problematic for the poor as a group over the longer term. As important as such large-scale systemic considerations are, the view from those in poor communities provides an even more convincing critique of our current welfare system. For example, visit the Washington, D.C. neighborhoods of Bellevue, Congress Heights, and Washington Highlands, just a short drive from the White House and Capitol Hill. Almost 40% of the households living in these communities have incomes below the poverty line, and more than half of the children live in poor households. Unemployment tops 30% and single mothers had one of every five families. Nearly 20% of residents lack a high school diploma. Roughly two-thirds of the people living in the communities receive food stamps. All of this occurs in a city with a median annual income of almost $95,000 per year. 
At the same time, just 45 miles to the northeast lie Baltimore's Sandtown, Winchester, and Harlem Park communities. In 2015, this community saw riots in the wake of the still unsettled death of Freddie Gray while in police custody. A third of houses are boarded up and abandoned. The community lacks a supermarket or even a fast food restaurant. Unemployment exceeds 20%, three times the city average, and one-third of families live below the poverty line. Two of three births are to unmarried women, and more than 60% of households are headed by single mothers. More than a quarter of students citywide fail to graduate, and the numbers are worse in Sandtown. Incarceration rates here are the highest of any neighborhood in Baltimore. Across the country, in Fresno, California, the poverty rate nudges 30% and is closer to 40% for children. Nearly one-third of Fresno families receive public assistance. More than half of all births in the city are to unmarried women. But overall statistics may disguise the reality of poverty in Fresno, which has some of the highest concentrations of poverty in the nation. Nor does the future hold promise for better, especially for the city's children. Nearly half of Fresno 11th graders fall short of grade-level proficiency in English. The high school graduation rate for African Americans is just 72%, while one out of five Latino children also fails to graduate. Nor is poverty the exclusive domain of minorities or big cities. America's poorest county is Owsley, Kentucky, which is rural and 98.5% white. The poverty rate here reaches an astounding 40%, including 56% of children. More people in Owsley receive government assistance per capita than in any other county in America. Like poor inner cities, much of the area is a service wasteland. The county, for instance, has just one grocery store. The nearest FedEx office is 37 miles away. Male life expectancy is nearly a decade shorter than in, say, Fairfax County, Virginia, less than a half day's drive away. Drug use, particularly methamphetamine and opiates, is ubiquitous. The same story can be seen across this country, from Detroit, Michigan, to the Mississippi Delta, and from Monticello, New York, to Centralia, Washington. It can be found equally in inner cities, small towns, and rural counties. One needn't accept a Trumpian vision of American carnage to understand that millions of Americans are suffering, trapped in lives of poverty and despair. In every town and city noted here, government has spent heavily to reduce poverty. A high percentage of residents are receiving some form of government assistance. The poor may well be better off financially than they would be in the absence of government aid. Yet no one could honestly describe those communities or the people living in them as thriving or flourishing in any sense of the word. And therein lies the real failure of our anti-poverty efforts. Our efforts have been focused on the mere alleviation of poverty, making sure that the poor have food, shelter, and the like. That may be a necessary part of an anti-poverty policy, but it is far from sufficient. A truly effective anti-poverty program should seek not just to alleviate poverty symptoms, but to eradicate the disease itself. We should seek not only to make sure that people are fed and housed, but that they are able to rise as far as their talents can take them. In a sense, we focus too much on poverty and not enough on prosperity. Perhaps The Economist put it best.
If reducing poverty just amounts to ushering Americans to a somewhat less meager existence, it may be a worthwhile endeavor, but is hardly satisfying. The objective, of course, should be a system of benefits that encourages people to work their way out of penury, and an economy that does not result in so many people needing welfare in the first place. Any praise for the efficacy of safety nets must be tempered by the realization that, for one reason or another, these folks could not make it on their own. President Johnson himself called for something more than simply fighting material poverty. The War on Poverty was created not only to relieve the symptom of poverty, but to cure it, and above all, to prevent it. Yes, he sought to meet the basic needs of those in poverty, but also to replace despair with opportunity. Yet in focusing on the material aspects of poverty, we have neglected the more important aspects of human flourishing. Our tax and spending policies should be better designed so as to enable all people to become fully actualized beings, capable of being all that they can be. Such flourishing requires a level of autonomy and self-sufficiency that is, in fact, compromised by the reliance on government assistance, or charitable assistance for that matter. Individuals cannot be said to have control over their own lives if they are perpetually dependent on another. As William Ernest Henley's poem Invictus so eloquently puts it, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Of course, none of us is an island. We interact with others all the time, and we both survive and prosper because of that interaction. In addition, all of us will experience times when we are dependent, in childhood or old age, for instance. In times of distress, our community, private charity, or possibly even the government may need to intervene. Yet such an intervention will always be a second-best solution. Of necessity, it reduces an individual's autonomy, self-ownership, and ability to make choices in life. There is a reason that, even in the case of individuals with mental and physical disabilities, we attempt to maximize everyone's self-sufficiency and ability to run their own lives. Increasingly, we are finding that programs, once intended to be stopgap or emergency measures, have become a form of long-term, even multi-generational, dependency. The poor are becoming, in effect, wards of the state. Seen in this way, the gap between poverty levels with and without benefits can be seen as a measure of failure. The poor themselves recognize how the existing welfare system fails to address their larger needs. According to a joint American Enterprise Institute and Los Angeles Times poll, 71% of individuals living below the poverty level believe that the government lacks the knowledge to eliminate poverty, even if willing to spend whatever was necessary. Moreover, the poll showed that people living below the poverty level were split evenly at 41%, for and against whether the welfare system actually helped people escape from poverty or encouraged the poor to stay poor. And, by a 48-41% to 41 margin, the poor believed that people who had been poor for a long time were likely to remain poor despite government assistance. Indeed, people with incomes above the poverty level were more likely to have a favorable impression of the welfare system and government's role than did the poor themselves. Cowan suggests that if the poor truly felt this way, then they ought to refuse benefits, which they are free to do, and the fact that so few of them do suggests that they see welfare as a net positive.
However, that view seems to underestimate both the tendency of people to discount long-term consequences, we all do things that are bad for us in the pursuit of immediate gratification, and to prioritize immediate need over non-material concerns. Maslow's hierarchy of needs puts physical needs such as food before self-actualization. In proposing a better way to fight poverty, we should not blindly support cutting programs for the sake of cutting. Nor should we assume that what we are doing now is working just fine and that we should simply do more of it. Rather, we should ask whether it is possible to ameliorate the suffering of those living in poverty at least as well as existing efforts, while also creating the conditions that would enable people to live a fulfilled and actualized life. Is it possible to achieve or even expand on the poverty reductions that we have seen without the negative side effects accompanying such accomplishments today? Can we fight poverty in a way that is compatible with the economic growth that will reduce poverty in the future? Finally, can we fight poverty in a way that empowers poor people to control their own lives? In part, answering those questions is hampered by the limits of the available evidence. Few questions in social science are definitively settled. We cannot go back in history, change a single policy, and observe the resulting effects. For both moral and practical reasons, we are seldom able to do the sort of double-blind or random assignment experiments commonly relied upon in the physical sciences. The few natural experiments that exist are limited in scope and inextricably linked to a specific context, meaning it is difficult to draw generalizable conclusions from the results. As a result, it is frequently impossible to definitively establish causality. At best, we can see that B is correlated with A, and then we must use our own intellect and common sense to decide whether A likely caused B, B caused A, whether a third thing caused both, or if A and B exist wholly independent of each other despite the apparent correlation. We can also weigh the total body of academic evidence in favor of one or the other interpretation. Writing in A Companion to the Philosophy of Science, Peter Lipton, former head of the Department of History and Philosophy of Science at Cambridge University, calls this process inference to the best possibility and likens it to a situation with which we are all familiar. When a detective infers that it was Moriarty who committed the crime, he does so because this hypothesis would best explain the fingerprints, bloodstains, and other forensic evidence. Sherlock Holmes, to the contrary, this is not a matter of deduction. The evidence will not prove that Moriarty is to blame, since it always remains possible that someone else was the perpetrator. Nevertheless, Holmes is right to make his inference, since Moriarty's guilt would provide a better explanation of the evidence than would anyone else's. Take, for example, one statistic widely discussed by those who study poverty. Unmarried women who have children are five times more likely to be poor than women who do not have children until marriage. We might conclude that reducing non-marital births would reduce poverty. Yet, we cannot say this with certainty. It could also be the case that those women most likely to give birth outside marriage have other characteristics that may incline them toward poverty, or that women who are more likely to be poor for a variety of unconnected reasons are more likely to have children outside marriage. We observe a correlation between poverty and non-marital birth, but cannot definitively attribute causation in a matter that is generalizable to every distinct context.
Nevertheless, we can apply experience and reason to understanding this correlation. Trying to support a child on one income is likely to be more difficult than on two incomes. A single mother is more likely to have trouble with childcare that could interrupt education or employment opportunities. Employers may be consciously or unconsciously more hesitant to hire single mothers, who may have to take time off to care for their children. An unmarried birth may not itself cause a woman to fall into poverty, but common sense suggests that it may make it more difficult to climb out of poverty. Even still, we cannot rule out the possibility that causation flows in both directions, meaning poverty and single mother childbearing may form a vicious circle. While there is much that we don't know, we cannot be paralyzed by the difficulties in collecting and interpreting data. Acknowledging the limits of what we know and can know, we still need to try to understand the essential causes of poverty and the best policies to enable people to escape it. In fact, the lack of definitive proof should itself inform government policy. As the Nobel Prize laureate in economic sciences, Milton Friedman said, Modesty is important in government, precisely because we may be wrong. But while lack of certainty should limit the grandiosity of our plans, it does not excuse inaction. I conclude that the provision of welfare to at least some people may, or may not, be necessary and justified, but is insufficient, and sometimes counterproductive, to provide an environment that enables humans to flourish. We should judge the success of our efforts to end poverty not by how much charity we provide to the poor, but by how few people need such charity. Not just by whether we have reduced the suffering of poverty, but by whether we have enabled people to flourish. And not by the alleviation of poverty, but by its eradication. Perhaps apocryphally, Einstein is reputed to have said that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over, but expecting different results. But for decades, we have essentially pursued the same anti-poverty strategy, creating more and more government programs and spending more and more money without visible improvement in the lives or opportunities of the poor and vulnerable. It should be apparent, therefore, that truly improving the lives of the poor will not be achieved through more small changes to the existing social welfare system. It is not a question of spending slightly more or less money of tinkering with the number of hours mandated under work requirements, or of rooting out fraud, waste, and abuse. We need a new debate, one that moves beyond our current approach to fighting poverty, to focus on what works rather than on noble sentiments or good intentions. I believe there is a more effective approach to fighting poverty, one based firmly on libertarian principles. It suggests that, before we discuss whether or how much redistribution is needed, we should attack the underlying barriers that can prevent poor people from prospering. As Nobel Prize laureate in economic sciences James Buchanan once put it, a strong defense of the liberties of individuals, which can only be secured in an operating market economy, may be joined with an equally strong advocacy for the reform of basic social institutions designed to produce greater equality among individuals in their initial endowments and capacities. I would go further, suggesting not that these two principles may be joined, but that they must be joined. Specifically, we should do the following. Reform the criminal justice system and curtail the war on drugs. The criminal justice system is discriminatory against the poor and minorities at every level. That fact would be a problem regardless of context. 
But in the context of poverty, it is even more of an issue. Large numbers of the poor are burdened with a criminal record that makes it far more difficult for them to find jobs. Moreover, dragging large numbers of poor and minority youth into the criminal justice system severely limits the pool of marriageable men, and a wave of fatherlessness afflicts poor communities. An effective anti-poverty policy should remove barriers to work and family formation. Reform education to give more control and choice to parents and to break up the public school monopoly. The days when it was possible to drop out of school and still find a job that enabled a person to support a family are long gone. Education is now vital to escaping poverty. At the same time, despite our spending more and more money on education, our public schools are failing many poor and minority students. The type of innovation necessary to turn this situation around is unlikely to occur under a system dominated by a government-run monopoly. Instead, our education system needs to be opened up to greater competition and choice. Bring down the cost of housing. Restrictive housing regulations primarily benefit the wealthy who own homes, while they drive up rents for the poor. Rather than chase rising housing costs with ever higher subsidies, we should focus on lowering the cost of housing and of rents in particular. Make it easier for the poor to bank, save, borrow, and invest. Income is critical to dealing with the immediate needs of the poor, but savings are vital to long-term prosperity. Yet too many poor people find it difficult to access the banking system. We should review banking regulations that primarily harm the poor while easing access to non-traditional banking alternatives. At the same time, we should review welfare eligibility requirements to ensure that they do not unnecessarily discourage the poor from accumulating savings. Increase economic growth and make it more inclusive. Economic growth does more to reduce poverty over time than any government intervention. Therefore, any effective approach to fighting poverty should include policies that encourage economic growth. But that growth must be inclusive. We should also make it easier for the poor to find work today by eliminating regulations that make it harder for the poor to find jobs or to start a business. Rather than create new programs and spend more money, we should start by undoing the harmful legacy of past and current government policies. Reforming criminal justice, education, and housing policy while encouraging job creation, economic growth, and individual savings will do more to help reduce poverty than anything we are doing today. Taken as a whole, these reforms would give far more poor people the opportunity to partake in the prosperity that they seek. I won't pretend that I have come up with a definitive answer to poverty. Readers will undoubtedly find more than enough room for argument. But in a debate too often frozen between hostile camps on left and right, I hope to offer a different perspective, one that can draw support from both sides. The stereotype of libertarian attitudes toward the poor ranges from indifference to outright hostility. Libertarians have too often failed to focus on the aspects of their agenda that can offer the greatest benefits to the poor. But as a libertarian, I believe in the inherent dignity and equality of every human being. One cannot believe that and ignore the millions suffering in poverty today. As we shall see, an agenda based on liberty, choice, and free markets has much to offer women, African Americans, the poor, and other individuals and groups too often marginalized in today's society.